You're listening to the One Hope Church Podcast. The following audio is from the weekly gatherings of One Hope Church in Orlando, Florida. We pray that you'll be encouraged and challenged as you listen. I'm, I'm John Baxter. I'm an elder here, and it's been my honor to... Uh, with Ivan Veldheisen to lead us through the book of 1 Timothy this summer. And this is our last installment. Our summer is coming to an end with next week as we gather together in the gym at 4 o'clock to see um, what God's been saying to our pastor Justin as his time away this summer. So make sure you're here next Sunday, please. This morning we're going to look at the end of, of... Timothy chapter 6, where Paul seems to spend a great deal of time talking about wealth and riches. A historian of uh, economics noted that in the year 1750, I wasn't around then, but in 1750, that there were easily over 100,000 people who were dying of malnutrition in the city of Paris. It's amazing to think about. And Paris was participating in the economic reality that was true of the the history of the world from from the beginning of its history, that very few people had really adequate resources, the resources they needed. Probably about 20% of people in the ancient world had what they needed for health and life, and 80% to some degree or another were, were lacking. And so in this text, in the sixth chapter, the Apostle Paul is really addressing that, that small group, that elite who, who have the funds that they needed. These would have been the patrons of the Roman society. Uh, the, most ancient societies were built around patronage groups. We see that in, in the Old Testament in Job. Job was a patron of his city. He had responsibilities he, to take care of widows and orphans and to be an elder of the city to meet at the gates with the other elders to make decisions. He had the resources and the riches to do that. So it was a, it was an honored role in the Old Testament and, and the patronage society continued in, in the Roman society. So these were, uh, they probably very few in the church. The church and, and, and Paul's day didn't attract that many wealthy people, but they were there and, and they, they played a social and important role in the Roman Empire. I actually have, have participated a bit in that. And when I served in the Philippines as a missionary for many years, we worked in the very rural and very, very poor parts of the Philippines up in the mountains. And to work up in the mountains, since uh, I was a foreigner, American, considered to be rich, I was told right from the beginning that I had to assume that role of of caring for these villages I worked in, or, or I would be rejected as someone who was, you know, greedy, stingy. So we helped provide for the schools, and we started uh, uh, um, medicine clinics, cared for people's uh, emergencies, and so I got to play a bit of that role of of patron. So I understand a bit about what what Paul is discussing. He's not criticizing that role. He's not saying don't don't have that role if, if you're wealthy, but he is saying I want you to fulfill that role correctly. I want you to be a godly patron. Not one who probably, as most of those rich and and wealthy were in the Roman Empire, simply using your position for yourself. So the Apostle Paul is really saying, I I want you to find the the life of Christ in this role that he's assigned you. 
And I think in, in doing so, they would be able to answer three questions that I want to ask that I think arise out of this text as they're using their wealth and their riches in this correct way. The interesting thing is that 80-20 that I talked about, 80 in need, 20, having sufficient, in, in, in our societies, because of this miracle of, of, of free markets, that's completely flipped. Those who are, in a sense, dying of malnutrition are very, very small percentage. Most of us now enjoy the wealth that the Apostle Paul is discussing here about these, these supposedly elite, rich patrons. So these questions don't only affect those that we might consider today the, the elite, the, the Elon Musk, but actually, from Paul's perspective, these three questions apply to us just as well. What's the first question? The first question I think that we find in this text is, can I find contentment? Can I find contentment if, if I'm a person who has a good deal of wealth, which I believe we do? Starting in verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we've brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. That's pretty true. Now, this is surprising for us, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, the Apostle Paul often experienced on his journeys simply that. He had food and clothing, no shelter, and yet he found contentment. Those who want to get rich fall into, into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He, at the beginning of this chapter, he says, he says that godliness with contentment is great gain. He's, he's contrasting it to the paragraph before where he's discussing false teachers in the church, which he had actually discussed earlier in chapter 1, who apparently were teaching some sort of religious practice that would lead to wealth and perhaps health. We have those today. We call that the health and the wealth gospel. That your religion, supposedly your relationship with God, was you were using it simply to attain something for yourself, health or wealth. And that's always been perhaps a temptation of the church. But the Apostle Paul is saying that godliness is wonderful. Godliness in the sense of, of an active life of faith that is following after our Lord Jesus and is in, intent upon pat, repatterning their life uh, according to the word of God. That this is of great gain if we can attach it to contentment, not necessarily to wealth or to health, as we just heard, but to find contentment in our life in Christ. So our, our, our religion, our faith, is not to be a means to something else. It's simply to be an end in itself, knowing and growing in God. He wants these disciplines of, of godliness to continue, but he wants them connected to contentment. And this apparently is a danger for the rich not to do so. But I, I want us, as we think about riches or money, to, to step back in a minute and, and and really think about the, like the psychological and the emotional and the cultural aspects of money, which are usually just as important or more important than money as that simple means of exchange, using it to, uh, to get other things. Because in every culture, money really 
defines a lot about who we are, who we think we are. That's why in, in, the, in the world of missions, there's nothing more thorny. There's prob- no, no problems greater than money issues <laughs> when, you, when you come to disagreements about money. Americans and Filipinos have completely different views about money. And it's very easy to run into conflict. That's because, because money at its deepest level tells us what our status is, what our identity is in a culture. Money informs us, especially for men. It tells us, I, I have a sense of worth, I have a sense of accomplishment because I can show you my, my wealth my, and what I've attained and the possessions and here perhaps my car or my house, my boat, on and on. And, and it develops in a sense of pride and, it, and it, it leads to a real lack of self-understanding of who we are and where our wealth came from and, and, and what we really are. It plunges us into sort of, a, of, a, of an ignorance of pride and arrogance. If we begin to identify our, our, uh, who we are and our importance with the level of wealth. But that's one of the roles that money has in every culture. Money allows for the sense of control and power and protection. If I have enough money, I can, I can, I can buy my way uh, to, to safety, perhaps. I can... I can control those around me. And that arises primarily out of some sort of hurt, some sort of deep sense of fear. And instead of addressing those problems themselves, I can use money to sort of cover over those things. And of course, money can buy us ease. It can buy us pleasure. It can, it can allow us to indulge in whatever drug, uh, lifestyle drug that we need to, 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 to dull that pain of being a fallen person can allow us to control relationships. People often fawn on people with money, so they'll, do, they'll act in a way that I like. They won't tell me the real truth about me or my relationship with them because they, they want to, to continue to cash in on the wealth that I have. So these are sort of the psychological, emotional, cultural aspects of money, and they're just as important as the things that money can buy in themselves. And that's why Paul is warning not so much about money, but he's really warning about the desire for money. This, this love of money, this, this sort of over-eagerness for wealth. Because at the heart of it, that desire for money is saying, I believe my contentment is contingent upon my wealth. I believe that I can't really find contentment and peace in this life unless I can exhibit wealth. I won't know who I am. I, I won't feel that I have some sort of worth in me. I won't, uh, I won't be able to protect myself. I won't be able uh, to find joy and happiness. And so the, the warning is for this desire for wealth that somehow in itself it can provide contentment. But can it? Can it? Uh, years ago, the richest man in the world was John D. Rockefeller. And a reporter once asked him, how much money is enough? This is a true story. And Rockefeller calmly answered, just a little bit more. (laughs) Just a little bit more. I mean, that's a truism, but it really is true that, that gaining wealth doesn't lead to commitment. There's always a desire for more. That's why in the 11th verse, we, we don't have it printed here, but the apostle Paul 
that says to Timothy, he says, but you, man of God, flee from all this. Run away from this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. He's saying your contentment's not going to be found in riches, but it's going to be found in this, this life, these characteristics that come from Christ, come from being attached to Christ, that come by faith, not by wealth. So he's really asking the rich, he says, look, would you, would you trade abiding in the life of Christ for your wealth? Would you put the attainment of wealth over finding life in Christ? That's what he's really asking. Do you think you could find contentment that way? When I, when I was a young associate pastor, we were in a church plant in Illinois, and I really had the privilege of an older and wiser elder. His name was D. Helvey. And D. was really a climbing executive uh, in the Sears Corporation. Well, there's a good reason not to trust him. Well, there's no more Sears, is there? It's simply gone. But at the time, Sears was still the largest retailer in the world biggest retail in the world. And uh, of course, they own the huge, tall Sears Tower down in Chicago. And the higher your position, the higher your office was in the building. And Dees was pretty far up, and he was climbing that ladder. And then one day, his superiors came to him and, and commanded him, ordered him to do something that he knew was unethical. Doesn't matter what it was. Dees simply knew he couldn't do it. It was unethical. And he told his boss, he said, I can't do that. You know, I'm a follower of Jesus. I I can't do that. And his boss said, you know, this ends your career today. He said, I can't do it. My contentment's not found by being climbing the floors of the Sears building. My life is found in abiding in Christ and saying in Christ. That was the end of Dee's career. <laughs> he wound up mowing all of his neighbor's yards just for fun and, and, and to care for them. But I'll tell you one thing that, that, that God enabled is that Dee became the, the general contractor as we built our, our, our first building. We moved out of a school. Have you ever done that? Worship in someplace like a gym or a school. And, uh, and we built a building. And Dee actually, which is unheard of, brought the, the uh, cost of our, our building under what was estimated in bid because uh, he, was, he was such a great businessman. Dee knew that his life wasn't in his wealth, his status, his position. He knew his contentment was found in Christ. That's why it was such a privilege to be mentored by Dee Helvey. His life was Christ, not Sears. So can we find contentment by seeking after wealth? No. Contentment comes from Christ. Here's the second question I have for us. Can I find joy? Can I find joy in life? Paul says to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, like the Sears Corporation, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything. And this is the point for our enjoyment. Apostle Paul's not condemning the wealthy He's saying, I want you to live in such a way that, that your life is filled with joy, even with these possessions. Bible's never begin, uh, been against wealth, per se. Actually, you know, when you consider the, the, the Bible's descriptions of our final state in heaven, they're, they're usually clothed in terms of abundance, streets filled with gold, new wine, new grain, uh, a, a life of, 
of abundance. It's not against wealth. But the real question has always been, as true in this passage, is what is your trust and your hope? That's what he's asking. And for those of us, and we do, we have wealth, it's so easy to begin to trust in that wealth. My status, my position, my power, my possessions. It tempts us to think that we've somehow made our own lives. Look what I've accomplished. And this is a type of arrogance, type of pride. We somehow think we're smarter than those around us. I've lived and worked with very poor Filipino farmers. And they work incredibly hard. And in their context, they're incredibly smart. I would last about one or two days in those jungles in the Philippines. And yet they thrive and they have families and they have communities. They're incredibly smart. Do you think for a second you're smarter or better or harder working than they are? You're wrong. We just happen to be born in a different place in a different time. It's not that it's important or unimportant that we use our skills, that we're faithful that we're faithful with, with what God has given us. Those things are important. But wealth allows us to fool ourselves to think that somehow we're, we're better than others, that we've made ourselves. And so Paul is saying, look, if you're going to believe that your identity and your worth are, are measured by this fallen culture's understanding of wealth and possessions, you're pretty much guaranteeing yourself a life of envy and greed and self-centeredness. That's what he's trying to say. If that's what your life consists of, to trust in riches in a fallen world is to rob yourself of peace. It's just that simple. And wealth becomes a terrible taskmaster over us. But on the other hand, if, if you see yourself as a faithful steward, Christ is the owner of all I have, but, but I'm a faithful steward, which means that you're going to use all of your abilities and strength and and, and talents to manage well what he has given you. You, you. you can't be generous with others if you don't manage well the wealth that he's given you. That's an important role. That's part of trusting and following Christ for the rich. It's to be faithful stewards. But the second I can acknowledge that he's the real owner, I can stop worrying. I can stop worrying about what happens to that wealth because it's not mine to begin with. If I'm in trouble, I can say, Lord, do you see how financially in trouble you are? <laughs> what, what do you want to do about it, Lord, with your financial problem? I'm just the steward. I'll do whatever you tell me, but I can quit worrying. That's exactly the thing that D was able to say to his boss. You know, I, this life, this position that, that I have, it ultimately isn't mine. I'm simply a steward of the talents God has given me. And I'm not dependent upon you or this job. And if the owner of my life wants me not to be working for this corporation, I'm going to let him worry about that. So if, if Jesus becomes the real shepherd of our lives, and we realize that we don't own this stuff to begin with, that he's the owner, we're the steward. We, we simply can become free to enjoy the people and the things that God has given us for a while. I don't have to control them. I don't have to manipulate them. I don't, I don't have to acquire them. Everything is not simply for my gain. 
I can stop worrying about it. I can actually enjoy what God gives me. And we do so when we begin to live that way. Guess what? People will enjoy being around us. Because they know you're not there to manipulate, to get something from them. People enjoy being around us. And I think they really enjoy being around us because of this third question. Can I find generosity? And so Paul says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Do you like being around a stingy, greedy person? I don't think anyone does. They see themselves as the center of all things, and since they're sucking all things towards themselves into this huge pit of endless need, that's an apt description of hell. Every person by themselves just trying to suck all life into themselves. What could be worse than that? To not have a generous soul is to already being experiencing hell. The simple truth is, if you trust God to care for you, you become free to be generous. You're free to be gracious and generous and giving. It's a simple truth. If I believe God is caring for me and will take care of me, I'm free to have a generous soul. Another business person you would consider a wealthy person, I've had the privilege to know as a a man named Howard Dahl. And uh, Howie was born into wealth. His father was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company in North Dakota. That's the background, his environment. But Howie's life was captured by Christ in college through Campus Crusade, for all you crusaders out there. And in his lifetime, Howie started many different companies. But as he started companies, he always saw himself as a steward whose primary goal was to care for his employees, to care for the community, to care for his customers. Every business he started, he started with the intention for that business to engage in local ministry and foreign missions. And he did that. He started agriculture implement uh, companies that were able to help spread the gospel throughout, at that time, the Iron Curtain, Western or Eastern Europe and into Russia. He's been in Russia so many times and always able to bring the gospel. His business is known as a generous giving business. So much so he was voted the, the top businessman, the best businessman in North Dakota. And he was invited onto the regional board of the Federal Reserve, a fairly high honor, because he exemplified a life of generosity because he was never worried about his companies or his possessions, because he had a deep and abiding belief that God would take care of him. In his life, Howard's, and in Dee's life, there was just this, I don't know, there's this foundational humility about life based on the belief that God was the giver of all they had. He was the owner of all they had that he was the one who ultimately accomplished all that they had accomplished. And both of those men were just a pleasure to know. Can I find contentment? Can I find joy? Can I find generosity? Not if you trust your riches. Not if you eagerly seek after riches instead of seeking after the life in Christ 
And that's what this next slide really is trying to say. I know this is not a new message, but perhaps it's a good message to remind ourselves that trusting God by pursuing godliness. Now, this, of course, assumes that you started a relationship with Christ, that you know him by faith, that pursuing godliness is by faith in what God is doing through the Holy Spirit in your life, but still choosing intentionally to to, to follow in those steps, to pattern your life in those in those godly disciplines that pursuing godliness, not wealth, brings contentment, joy, and generosity, which Paul wants to say is really the rich life. That's why he ends this discussion in 19 by saying, in this way, the wealthy, and remember that includes us now, will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is true life. He's not that interested in riches in this passage. He's interested that you would know life, a rich, content, joyful, generous life. That's his goal. He wants it for the wealthy. He wants it for the average. He wants it for all of us who are in Christ. For the the last five years, I've had the the privilege to, to speak from the front from time to time when one of our pastors wasn't able and I would say this, my goal over these last five years, you know, approaching uh, old age myself, my, my goal has always been to try to help you keep a hold of faith for a lifetime. To be able to anticipate some of the things that are going to come down the road that may, in a sense, steal your, your, your faith, your joy, your love for Christ away. And this is one of them. To somehow thinking I, I don't have enough wealth for men that I don't measure up compared to my neighbors or the other guys at work in terms of what they have or that somehow God's not going to be able to take care of me if I actually follow him, if I invest my time in him. You know, it's the dangers you head towards retirement. Is social security going to even be there? Is it enough? Will God be able to take care of me? And your life can just become full of worry and selfishness. It's a temptation that the Apostle Paul recognizes. And, and my goal would be that you, you recognize it, that it's out there, it's coming down the road in a sense towards you, and that you become intentional about saying, no, my life isn't bound up in riches or the status of riches. My real life is bound up in Christ who's able to take care of me so that I can live a life of joy and generosity. Well, I want to end by just saying, uh, how do we do that? And here's the simplest way, and you know this. Go to the last slide. The, the, the way we fight that temptation is by giving. Giving conquers greed. This is one of those places in which behavior starts before emotion and starts before belief. You may be very worried about it. You may doubt that it's true. You won't ever know it's true until you actually start the behavior. Here's what God's Word says. He wants us to be rich in good deeds and to be generous towards all. Giving conquers greed. You have to start by giving. And then the emotions follow. You're going to move from worry and envy and selfishness, those things that only make you, but also those around you miserable, to that life of contentment and joy. But you have to give your wealth away. 
Now, you have to be a faithful steward. We're not talking about just wasting your money. You won't have any finances to give away if you're not a careful and a faithful steward with your money. But the only way to battle greed is to give. How much should you give? I don't know. The, 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 the cure depends on the disease. I don't know how bad the disease of greed is in you. <laughs> but if it's really bad, you may need to give a lot away, right? I don't know. He said to the rich young ruler, I want you to give it all away. He doesn't say that to everybody. But it's, it's, the, the battle is to come to the place where you no longer trust in wealth. Not just simply to, that you'll have enough possessions for your life, but also that my status isn't built upon wealth. You want to start and God will guide, right? If you start by faith, and that's that first move of faith, by giving, God will tell you where to go. Start somewhere. Start with that beginning to trust God, and he'll begin to provide the contentment. I would say this too, from not this passage, but others, as often as you can, give in secret. Isn't that what the Bible says? To give in secret. Why? Because then we, we fight against that, those motives of, of using giving for our own purposes, to build up our own ego, to show off to others, to gain status in the church. There's nothing good that we can't mess up, right? We, we all agreed upon that when we, when we came into the church. There's nothing good that we can't ultimately mess up. So even the good of generosity and giving, we can, we can manipulate. That's why he says give in secret. Get started. Start by faith. Maybe your emotions aren't there. Start somewhere. God will show you how to continue. Give in secret. But also here's something very practical. Is, is you, want to, you want to schedule your giving in the beginning, not at the end. By that I mean you, you don't want to take care of all the month's expenses and look at how much you have left over and give. Because I can tell you this, when you really want something, you'll figure out how to get it. Um, I like to ride motorcycles, right? A couple years ago, I bought my uh, uh, Yamaha. And um, I just worked on the books until I found a way to buy. <laughs> I just changed this here, pushed this over here. I got in the end what I wanted, right? And so we can always manipulate our books to the end of the month and say, oh, look, I don't have any funds to give. So you want to give at the beginning. The beginning of the month is so easy with, you know, the bank, the scheduled giving. Before you even see that money, to have it scheduled to be leaving, to be giving. Don't wait to the end of the month. Give it before you do your spending on other things, not after. And then finally, enjoy your rich life. As you enter into this practice of giving, you're pursuing a, a, a life of, of knowing and trusting God, and part of it is this life of generosity and giving, then I think the Apostle Paul simply wants you to enjoy your rich life. And I'll end with this story. There was a time when I was younger, didn't have any margin financially, <laughs> really none. And somehow I, I felt God said to me, that he, he wanted me to give the, the, all the money I had to live on for that month for an evangelistic event we were having. And I said, okay. So I, I, I gave my month's uh, living for that event. And you know what that event, one of my, my closest friends, his brother and his brother's wife came to the event, and they both came to know Christ that night. You know, 
And I want to tell you, I've spent a lifetime of enjoying that and that relationship. I spent a lifetime of knowing joy because of that one giving event, a lifetime of knowing that joy, and it's a joy that's going to continue forever. Riches in themselves can never do that. That's so much better than a stingy life. Let's pray together. Well, I want to thank you for all the wealth and riches you give us, but Lord, it's also a great danger for us. Will you allow us to listen to the words of Apostle Paul today? We allow us to find contentment and joy and a generous life apart from depending and trusting in wealth. Lord, if there's some here who have been struggling with that and that fear, could you speak to them right now and give them uh, someone or something that they can give to, that they can start investing and giving away their wealth as they trust you? And Lord, as they begin to do that, I would ask and, and just claim for them a, a rich life of joy. Lord, speak to us. Show us what you want us to do, maybe even this evening when we get home, to set up an account to start giving and then to listen to you and to follow you. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the One Hope Church podcast. We encourage you to share what you've heard in conversation with family, friends, classmates, and coworkers. To connect with us or learn more, visit wehaveonehope.com.